Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we explore the reasons behind the rapid expansion of the Ottoman Empire, including its military conquests, political organisation and relative religious tolerance, as well as the challenges and weaknesses that led to its eventual decline. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, our special guests are renowned Ottoman Empire authors, Eugene Rogan, Caroline Finkel and Mark David Baer. They offer insights into one of the most influential empires in history and the lessons that can be learned from the empire's rise and fall. Hello, my name is Akhil Ahmed. I'm going to be your host for this fantastic session on the Ottomans from conquest to collapse. Um, the reason why I'm chairing it is because I'm stupid, obviously. No, but the reason why I'm chairing it is I was, the head, I was at one point, former, I was one point the head of religion at the BBC, and I did a series on the Ottoman Empire. And back then, my guest to my left here. I'm going to make sure I get all everyone's names particularly correct. <laughs> Caroline Finkel. Sorry, Caroline's book on the Ottomans was what we basically cribbed the whole series off. So, Did I get paid? I can't remember. <laughs> well, I know Eugene got paid because Eugene was actually the official consultant yes. on that. So I'm now surrounded by two old friends and a new friend who are experts on the Ottoman Empire. So uh, I'll just give them a brief... Inter- well, I'll just briefly mention them by name and they can obviously talk about themselves when we... I mean, all you, all you need to know is... There are three fantastic books on the Ottoman Empire, which I'm sure you can purchase outside, written by these fantastic three individuals. And you can go online and watch the series that, we, that these guys helped make for me as well. So we've got Mark David Baer on our left there. We have a new book on the Ottomans. What's the book name's title of the book, Mark? The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars and Caliphs. Excellent. Caroline, your name of your book? Osman's Dream, the story of the Ottoman Empire from 1300. That's an American one, that's good. Yeah. 1300 to 1923. It's a great book. And Eugene? Which one should we talk Eugene about? Eugene Rogan, we'll talk about your new Ottoman <laughs> book, the latest one. The latest is The Fall of the Ottomans, the, fall the of Great the Ottomans. War in the Middle East. There you go. Is it, I'm just saying that, an incredible panel, an incredible panel. And we're going to kick off to start off this with is the first thing I'm going to say is actually, Caroline, I'm just going to ask you about this to start off which is there's a lot of interest in the Ottoman Empire with this whole thing, Ottomania, all the kind of like Ertugul and all these kind of dramas that people have been making from in Turkey in the last 10 years or so. But we'll put all of that kind of slightly fan- fantasy, I'm sorry to do this to people, it's not real, those Turkish dramas, and they're, they're not real. Um, who are the Ottomans? Well, I'm very happy to put all that to one side because I've lived in Turkey for 30 years and I'm afraid I didn't watch any of those um, those series, but they were extremely popular, and people's ideas of history are, as you say, probably based on them. Well, we can start. I mean, one of the series you mentioned is Ertuğrul, and this Ertuğrul was indeed a real person, as are the protagonists. It's just the way that they're portrayed. Uh, the Ottomans were, at the beginning, just another nomadic tribe or semi-nomadic tribe in Anatolia in medieval times in the 13th century thereabouts. Um, They didn't particularly look as though, I mean, there was no sense or way you could imagine that they would become what they became. But they somehow lucked out in the struggle with the other um, clans, small states, statelets around them, um, partly by luck, partly by clever diplomacy, 
partly by the message that they brought. Um, they attracted to themselves a lot of, you know, it was a, basically, it was a Christian, it was a Greek Orthodox area, Anatolia, which is what we're talking about at the moment. I'm sorry we don't have a map, that would have been, been helpful too. And with their success, their sort of, you know, increasing success, they attracted all these, um, these other uh, uh, inhabitants of the area um, to their flag. And that was really the beginning of their, of their success. And they rather quickly, well, to a historian, a century seems rather quick, so <laughs> they rather quickly sort of established a viable state which exponentially um, took off. And then, Shall I stop there? Yeah, and then that takes us probably to, what, say, Const Constantinople. Well, be before they and take Constantinople, let's, let's take a step back and let's talk about Edge Rule. Let's talk about that TV show. How many people are watching it? Good, yeah? <laughs> How many people have watched Magnificent Century? I've watched the whole, all of it. Um, there's also a series on Abdul Hamid II. There's also a series on the Battle of Gallipoli. I watched them all. Yes. <laughs> if you're from Pakistan, Magnificent Century might be known as Hurram Sultan, which is, was one of the biggest drama series they had over there. Yeah. And the important thing here is that these series allow us to think about the past. They have incredible costumes, they have the, the Turkish carpets, they have the horseback riding, they have the sword fights. So it's really good for getting into the idea of the 13, 14, 15 centuries. But one thing they get wrong in these TV shows is they depict this world where it's Muslim versus Christian. Simple, black and white. And of course that was part of the world. But if we go back to Osman, we think about who Osman was and who he surrounded himself by. His right-hand man for, the first, for a dozen years was a Greek Christian who remained Christian. And the two of them went shoulder to shoulder into battle against Christians as well as against Muslims. So it's not so simple. Osman also surrounded himself by two different kinds of Muslims. So there were the kind of Muslims who you would recognize today in Bradford giving a Friday sermon, but then there are the kind of Muslims who engaged in practices that Muslims today wouldn't consider Islamic. Taking narcotics, dancing, howling, singing, and so on. Uh, also different kinds of body piercing. So this is, this is the, the real world of Osman in the beginning. And I, I bring this up because Osman and most of the Ottomans after him, most of the dynasty, had this tolerant sense of bringing people together and what mattered was loyalty. So it didn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're Armenian, you're Greek, you're this kind of Muslim, that kind of Muslim. If you pledge loyalty to the dynasty and later on to the empire, you were part of it. But, uh, so then, but once you, obviously, they've, as Caroline said, they've, they've, they're going towards the, this big empire of that period in that particular area, which is the Byzantine Empire and they've been in conflict with them for quite some time, and then they do take Constantinople, which is a huge moment. Obviously, it, many people see it as the fall, the fall. It's referred to in the West as the fall of Constantinople, and in the Middle East, we'd refer to it as the, um, the conquest of Constantinople. What's the significance? You know, why, why, so, so, why so important? The, the conquest, yeah. which yeah. We, we do call it. Yes. <laughs> well, by that time, the Byzantine Emperor, which you may be more familiar with as people growing up in a sort of Western... Um, in education environment, I certainly was before the first time I went to Turkey, um, was very weak at the time. I mean, the main blow against the Byzantines and against Constantinople was the Fourth Crusade, when the uh, Crusaders occupied, I mean, they were heading for Jerusalem, but they occupied the city from 1204 to 1216, 1261, I'm sorry, 
And um, after that, it never really regained its, its former vitality. It you know, broke up into princedoms. We have to remember also the Balkans, uh, which had been part of the Byzantine Empire, but gradually sort of slipped away. So the, the taking of, um, of the city by Mehmet II, the conqueror, uh, was a huge moment. This had been foretold in Ottoman myth, legend. I mean, we know these legends, they're in the <laughs> literature. Um, so there was always this sense that one day it would be, be Muslim. And even during, after the time of the Prophet, you know, 7th and 8th century, yeah. there were yeah. campaigns against the city, against the Byzantine city, um, which failed, obviously. There was an, even an Ottoman attempt in 1394, 1453, of course, is the actual conquest, by the grandfather, grandfather um, of Mehmed, um, which failed. He sat across the Bosphorus on the, uh, Europe, the Asian side of the Bosphorus for a couple of years and just couldn't get break into the city. So it was a huge moment, and the way the Ottomans treated it, um, once they had gained it, um, probably we don't need to go into all that detail, but they very much saw it, they saw themselves as successors of what had gone before. Yes, it was a new, it was Muslim, not Christian, I mean, in simple terms, but it was, it was a, a huge uh, success for them, and they wanted to build on, on the past, not to erase it. And, and Eugene, how did, how did the conquest, as it were, of Constantinople, how did it, did it change the Ottomans? Because suddenly they've gone from, they've, you know, there are these, not a century or so earlier, there are these nomadic kind of horsemen, as it were. That's how they're caricatured in many respects, like, you know, by people like me. But these nomadic horsemen who then go all the way, and suddenly they're in charge of this citadel. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're in charge of this incredible kind of Christian, iconic kind of city. Totally. I mean, the Ottomans didn't need to prove anything. They were already a very urbanized empire. This was their third capital city. They, they first established a capital in Bursa, mm -hmm. and then in Edirne, and each of their capitals they endowed with a kind of monument that made them stand out as an empire of, of record. You know, this was a force to be reckoned with. But Constantinople was really of a different nature, and I think what it does is it allows the Ottomans to claim to succeed where every Muslim empire before them had failed in driving the Byzantines out of their capital. As, as Caroline said, the Arabs tried it already back at the time of the Prophet. They could claim the cred of having achieved what no other Islamic empire had done. And, and I think the other is thinking in even grander terms, it allowed the Ottomans to claim that they were successors, not just to the Byzantines that they displaced, but to the Romans themselves. I mean, this is the ultimate world empire now. And in that sense, I think the Ottomans were able to lay out their stall and say, we are the dominant force in the world from our new capital, Constantinople. And the taking of Constantinople, Mark, there's a, I've, I've, there's a great story about how they eventually do take it because it's supposed to be, you know, there's no way you can take it, but they do, they do something which is militarily at the time is unheard of. You want to elaborate on that, the whole thing about taking the stuff, the, taking the boats all the way onto land? Okay. Who wants to, well, who wants was, to talk well, about well, that? Okay, well, since I, I, also a military historian yes. in the past life. Yes. Um, well, I mean, they, one of the things was this gun, this huge gun, mm. which Mehmed parked on the western side of the city, and that was made by a Hungarian gun maker, cannon maker, that's supposed to have been very important. But there was also this, they dragged their boats into, within the city, they dragged them up and over 
and mm. in, so they were right within the city, and the um, Byzantines basically could not resist this. So they were getting attacked both from the outside and from the inside, and since they were sort of crumbling anyway. I mean, yeah. it lasted, what, three days? Yeah, because they, they had a, what they called a, a they had a, a pontoon. Pont they had this thing, but you couldn't get across the boats, so they took the boats, lifted it onto land, went round, and in that poetic language that you can use in a film script, whatever, <laughs> they, the, the, mm. the inhabitants of, Byzant uh, of Constantinople woke up in the morning to the Turkish fleet. Well, the Ottoman fleet. Yeah. And if you go to Istanbul today, there's this, um, right outside the walls where they, they breached the walls, at Adirne Gate, there's a, a, a panorama, I forget what they call it, Mm, it's yeah. called Panorama, yeah. I was looking for the English word, but yeah. So it was actually built, I think, by an East German, uh, East German um, uh, architect. But it was anyway. painted by Koreans, interestingly enough. Okay. It's amazing. Right, yeah. it is incredible. And the way they depict Mehmed was, how old was he? 21, right? Mm. What have mm. you accomplished by the age of 21? I, I didn't do anything by 21. But so he, in that depiction, he is, of course, he's a brilliant military leader. And of course, he did this thing that no other Muslim leader had ever done. And they depict him as this triumphant, victorious man, which he was. But if you read the Ottoman Chronicles, when Mehmed enters the city, he's actually driven to tears. Mm. He says, what have we done? And he calls his troops to stop looting. He ends the looting, and he goes all the way to the Hagia Sophia, the Hagia, uh, Hagia Sophia, I the see. Church of Divine Wisdom, which was the biggest structure in the world at the time. And he enters it, and he, and he, and he gets off of his horse, and he, he's just amazed, and he clambers up. They go up to the dome, and they have a look, and he's just in awe at what previous, um, what the Byzantines had done. So there's this, this human element, too, of the story that is often, it's often mm -hmm. missing. So he decides that he's going to rebuild the city. But again, he could have rebuilt the city since it was taken by force. He could have rebuilt it as a purely Muslim city if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He brings Christians, Jews, and Muslims from throughout the empire to the city. He allows Christians and Jews to rebuild or even to build new houses of worship for themselves, and he creates the diverse Istanbul that would be a, um, a trademark of Ottoman times for centuries. And in his palace, which you can visit today, um, Topkapı Palace, of course, he actually builds three pleasure pavilions. And one is in Turkic style, and that one still exists today. One is in Byzantine Christian style, uh, that has disappeared. And one is in, in um, Mongol style. So the Ottomans are always taking all of these aspects of their territories and of their past, Christian past, Muslim past, Mongol, European, Asian, and creating something new. Mm -hmm. And when, they, when they're creating this, they've, they've, they've conquered Istanbul, uh, Constantinople. Istanbul, which depends which century you're in. When the Ottomans call it Constantinople. That's they right, use yeah. the Arabic word, well, that's another, that's another series you can watch on <laughs> that we did called Byzantine, A Tale of Free Cities. Um, but um, but um, Eugene, when they do take it, and you said obviously that, that suddenly they're on the world stage now, I say, look at us, we have conquered one of the, the you know, that the, 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 was one, at one point the seat of the Holy Roman Empire, right? We've conquered that. We are now, we're bringing all these people in, we're rebuilding this, we're creating this new, new society. What do they do then? Once you're on that world stage, once you are, once you've got Constantinople, what do, you, what do they go on to do? Because they, they have come from, you know, they've, they've conquered Antolia, 
<laughs> all the way to Constantinople. Is that is it is it centuries or is it straight away they say are they a bit cocky and say, right, we're going there next? It's just a matter of decades. And I believe the logic that drove a lot of the great world empires in the early modern period was conquest. Conquest was your source of wealth. If you didn't conquer powerful neighbors, the risk was they might come and sting you. So the only way you could stabilize your frontiers was to keep them unstable. The only way that you could keep the wealth of your treasury was to plunder your neighbor's treasuries. But I think in the first instance, having now succeeded in displacing the Byzantines from the Balkan territories, from Anatolia, they're looking east, in the first instance, to Persia, an incredibly rich empire in its own right, an arrival to the Ottomans for domination in that Asia Minor landmass. And so the first of the conquest after mm. Constantinople is actually going to be taking the Ottomans into the, the Far East. But, this uh, is a very important moment. Isn't they'll it? make so, a wrong yeah. turn at one yes. point, yeah. which brings them into my neck of the woods. Yeah, and that's the, that's the point I wanted to go on to now, which is actually the key moment. We can talk about the other key moments, which people <coughs> often refer to. We've talked about one, which is the uh, fall of Constantinople. Then we'll talk later on about the you know, gates of Vienna. But actually, for any real student of the Ottoman Empire, and the, the real importance is for, for many of us is, is when they go south as opposed to north as it, or, or east or west, I, I don't know which is when, <laughs> exactly, yeah. when they go down, when they have the conflict with the, um, is it Safavids, is it? Safavids, uh, Safavids and, the and the Mamluks. So yes. what, I, I think it's really important to explain that because yeah. one, what does that mean in terms, what, that, what does the empire then become? And secondly, we're actually living now, you could argue, with the, with the after effects, although all these centuries later, of how the Ottomans went to war with the Safavids. Well, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a puddle on itself. Yeah, you can so write I'm an essay on that one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I mean, perhaps, you know, as, as Westerners, we know about the Ottomans and about Islam, mm. Islam against the West and so on, though this is sort of Mark's special subject. Um, but, you know, mm -hmm. obviously, diplomacy was important all through. But what I think we know less about, as people sitting here, is what was going on with, on the Ottomans' eastern frontier. Um, Yes, I always think it's, you know, her heretics mm -hmm. are always much more execrated by power than are, you know, people who just don't share your, your, own, your own views. So the um, Safavid Empire, which started from humble beginnings um, that Akhil mentioned, um, rose very fast from about 1500 in Azerbaijan and then, you know, into Iran and was a Shia empire. I'm sure you must know, you live in Bradford, I'm sure a lot of you, and you'll know quite a lot about Islam. Um, and the Ottomans were, of course, Sunni, but within that there were variations. Um, but the Shia were for the Ottomans, they just, they were, they were unsupportable. I mean, this was, was such a, it was, was at such odds with their way of Islam in a more sort of general terms. And they, 1514 is the big date, mm -hmm. they went to war against, the, um, against the, the Shia state of Iran, and they won. Um, Eastern Anatolia, of course, I mean, borders weren't fixed then, so they had, you know, there were many, many people in Eastern Anatolia, which was supposedly, effectively, um, Ottoman controlled, though, of mm -hmm. course, control at that time was rather weak. I mean, they didn't have the, you know, the communications and so on to control it that well. Um, so there were all these people within the tent in eastern Anatolia who were sympathizers of the uh, Shia, which sort of added insult to injury. 
Anyway, so that was one side of what happened. And this rivalry, Shia-Sunni rivalry, we know about it. We know from the modern day. We know, for instance, what happened has happened in Iraq after the war, the two sort of, you know, feuding bodies of Shia and Sunni. I mean, this is very simplified, but you will know these words and you'll know the, the sort of split between them. Um, so having seen off temporarily, because they were a constant sore, the Shias of Iran, the Ottoman army at that time then went into Egypt, and in 1516 early, they, they overturned the Mamluk state, which was a very uh, sort of rich and powerful state in Egypt. Egypt was an incredibly important uh, state, and when it became Ottoman, it was a very important part of mm. the Ottoman um, Empire for the resources it provided, the treasury it provided, which went back, was carried to Istanbul every, uh, you know, to every year. The, 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 mm. uh, income from this place. But they also gained the um, holy cities across the Red Sea um, of Mecca and Medina. And to be a Muslim leader, you had to have control of these cities. So this uh, it was as big a moment mm. um, as the taking of Constantinople for the Ottomans. I mean, mm. it was hugely important. So then there's a lot, I won't go on too long, but there was a lot of sort of, you know, of, of assertion of the Ottomans as the most important, the main, the only Islamic power, a Sunni power that held the sacred places where, which were associated with Muhammad's life in the seventh century. Mark, how much did it change them? It did, but I would take, again, take a step back. And it wasn't only a Sunni-Shi'i struggle. Again, I mentioned earlier loyalty. So what mattered was loyalty. So there were Shi'is in Lebanon. Lebanon was majority Shi'i. And the Ottomans ruled Lebanon and, and had Shi'i governors and um, Shi'i generals. So it wasn't so much what your religion was, but if you were loyal. So on that campaign east against the Safavids, Selim I massacred, or his troops massacred, 10,000 um, Shi'is. And again, because they were supposed to be loyal to him. They are supposed to be his subjects. Now the descendants of those Shi'is today in Turkey call themselves the, the Alevi, the Alawite. So when the head of the regime in Turkey, Erdogan, named a bridge after Selim I, you can see why a lot of the Alevi in Turkey were quite upset. So, so it wasn't only a religious struggle, it was also about loyalty. Now they conquer, how does it change them? So they, they conquer not only Mecca and Medina, but also they conquer Cairo. And so they're able to take all of these holy relics that Muslims had been um, revering for centuries. They take all these relic relics, which again, you can visit today in Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, um, such as the, the swords and the mm -hmm. clothes of, the, of all the, the, the Muslim, uh, the family of the Prophet, uh, for example. So they, they have that, because until this point, the Ottomans are just in power because they're the most powerful. Mm -hmm. And they say they're bringing about justice. But now they have the holy relics. More than that, they also now have a claim to the Caliphate. Mm -hmm. So the last descendants of the caliphs of Baghdad had taken refuge with the Mamluks in Cairo. So when the Ottomans capture Cairo, they not only ship Christians and Jews from Cairo to Istanbul, not only do they ship the holy relics, but they, also, they send the last descendant of the caliphate. And this is important because it's not Salim, but the next sultan, his son Suleiman, who will say, I am actually the caliph. I am the Sunni Muslim leader of all Muslims of the world. So that, that's a profound change. But politically and, it, and economically and politically, it changes them as well, doesn't it? Because suddenly they, they are effectively up to that point, you know, 
Anatolian, you could even argue they're going to heading, to, uh, heading towards Europe, mm -hmm. but then they take a turn down, and then they're embroiled in the politics of the, of, what, of the Middle East, because that's just a rogue, it's a, let's think of the countries that we're talking about, it's from Saudi Arabia all the way to Egypt, to Palestine, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, all these fantastic non-failed states. Um, um, the, that's the next panel, like it. That's the next panel, yeah. But but it, but clearly, this this the, the 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 taking the taking on of the Mamluks and taking over their territory, the conflict with the Shia, and then actually introducing fatwas for the first time mm. that effectively make it acceptable for a Sunni to go to Sunni regime to go to war with a Shia regime, um, it makes them less maybe a, a European power, would you say, or a different kind of power? Well. Spare a thought for the Mamluks first. I think we're giving them a very short shrift here. Yeah. How many centuries were they in charge? They come to power in 1250. Yeah. So by the time they fall, they're in the third century. Yeah. And if you like, every state will put a veil between itself and its neighbors, the better to kind of reflect on their own glory. And the, the Mamluks were perfectly satisfied that they were the most glorious Islamic empire in the world. They... Um, controlled Mecca, Medina, the pilgrimage routes uh, that, that led Muslims from the world to perform the annual rites of Hajj. They had beat the Crusaders and driven them out of their Crusader kingdoms. They, they really were convinced of their merits, and they were some of the finest swordsmen. They were incredibly well-dressed. If you had the slightest weakness for fashion, the Mamluks are your empire. <laughs> And in a sense, their encounter with the Ottomans was a bit like that Indiana Jones movie where Indiana is confronted with a bandit who comes out of him wielding a sword and is, you know, taking great pleasure that he's going to decapitate, decapitate Indiana Jones, who pulls out a pistol and shoots him. The man falls dead. The Mamluks went to fight the Ottomans fully dressed in beautiful clothes with the most amazing gold inlaid weapons to engage in swordmanship with the Ottomans, and the Ottomans shot them. And so they fell, but they hadn't anticipated, they didn't see it coming, and it transformed the Eastern Mediterranean, for whom the Ottomans were a kind of rumor. Yes, they'd heard about Constantinople, but that was really old news. And the power center was Cairo, and could these Turks make their way to Cairo? They did. And in the process, they had to transform the culture of the Eastern Mediterranean. And it doesn't stop in Cairo, of course. They will then find various ways to append all of North Africa, right up to the frontiers of Morocco, to the expanding state of Suleiman. But, um, you know, they, they, they um, have to engage in the winning over of the people of this empire to recognize this new sultan. They will face a number of challenges, uh, uprisings from within these Arab provinces. But in the end, they prevail, and it's going to transform the Ottoman Empire from its orientation towards Central Asia to becoming truly a Mediterranean power. And suddenly, the neighbors are no longer just Asian neighbors. It's, it's going to be Habsburgs. It's going to be the Holy Roman Empire. It's going to be a Mediterranean frontier. And I think those are really transformative moments for mm. the Ottomans as a world power. Um, and what about the caliphate, then? How does that change the empire or change the uh, relationship that they've had because you talked obviously when they when they take when they take Constantinople it's remade as this kind of um, multicultural city yeah 
everybody's equal to an extent. You not pay equal, in, not you're not equal. equal. You're paying. You're paying more in taxes. Allowed, yeah. You're paying. You're paying more in taxes. Your build, the church can't be higher than a yeah, mosque, but it's tolerated. Exactly. So it's, it's tolerated rather than equal. You're right. Yeah. But but once you once you become the caliph or the caliph. Then how, does, it, does, it, does that not change? Or why does it not change? No, it doesn't change because the Ottomans, they are basing their law system on, on three mm -hmm. different things. One is, one is Mongol custom and law, mm -hmm. and the Mongols were quite tolerant, in fact. Another is Islamic law, which has a place for Christians and Jews. Mm -hmm. But then also there's secular law. So the Ottomans were always bringing together secular and religious law, mm -hmm. um, whatever worked best for the dynasty, for the empire. So mm -hmm. the sultan could issue a decree, and it could be acted upon. And so, so whatever fit the dynasty. Um, so so it, it didn't have to transform it in the, in the way you suggest. Yeah. Well, did they? But then I suppose there's that old famous thing about, you know, not one Ottoman caliph went to do Hajj, um, which says quite a lot. Um, another one for those kind of Ertugul fan, fan, fans of, Ottoman, of, of the Ottomans. <laughs> um, but actually, um, did they change the caliph by becoming the caliph? How it would have been before? Well, they, I mean, they didn't... Okay, Suleiman had a proliferation of titles. This is mid-16th century we're talking, and if you've seen this harem, all mm -hmm. the magnificent century, you know all about this. Um, one of which was, you know, protector of the faith, or whatever it is, I can't remember exactly how one would, might translate it. Um, but he, they didn't sort of promote it as an active, Mark may disagree with this, but there's, there's always this sort of tension within Ottoman history, you know, how much the Ottomans put themselves forward um, as, as being the caliph. They used it, perhaps they used it subtly. I'm not, you know, I don't... You, reading later historians writing on the dynasty, it's not something that catches your eye. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the way I framed it, um, as I read at the time from what I you know, was reading my research, it wasn't until, would you believe it, 1774, mm -hmm. when there was a, they lost a huge war against the Russians, mm -hmm. because who became their sort of big neighbor, that they put forward um, themselves as the caliph, partly because there were a lot of Muslims in the southern reaches of Russia, in the steppe and so on, and Kazan, so on and so forth, who were being treated horribly, um, and the Ottomans were trying to stand up against this. Of course, the Crimea, the Crimea was in the hands of the Tatars, the Crimean Tatars, who were Ottoman vassals, and that state was a very, very important for sort of Ottoman identity and so on. So when they lost the Crimea, then they sort of became more actively caliphs and into the 19th century, which um, Eugene mm. knows far more than I do about, but um, that's sort of how I so see is that, it. Is that how you see it, Mark? But if you, if you ask, you were asking If we're gonna have a, you know, you can, you can, have, you can disagree. <laughs> you, you were asking about how the, the, the conquest of um, the three Muslim holy cities mm. transformed the Ottomans. One way it transformed is they became a, a naval power. They're an international naval power. And this ties into the caliphate because the Ottomans from the 16th century well, even from the end of the 15th century, or 16th century, are the main rival of the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. um, and the Ottomans are sending naval expeditions and conquering territory in West, what is today, Western India, in Gujarat. And the Ottomans are sending naval expeditions to Indonesia. Mm. And so, so with this also goes the spread of the idea that the Ottoman Sultan is the Caliph. Mm -hmm. So we have Chinese Muslims who are at the Friday prayer are reading the name of Suleiman as the leader of the, of the Muslims. Mm -hmm. So it is something, it is something um, worldwide. Mm -hmm. Now Suleiman is a fascinating figure because more important than the title of Caliph were the other titles that writers around him were, were calling him. So they called him the Mehdi, the Redeemer. They called him the Mujeddid, the Renewer of the Age. He was a, almost a messianic figure in the eyes of the people around him. 
And this, takes, this connects us to European history, because Suleiman's main rival was Charles V, and uh, the, the leader of, well, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, and the leader of the Habsburg Empire. So Charles V was, writers around Charles V were saying he's the Messiah, mm -hmm. He's the world conqueror. Charles V is the one who's going to unite the world under one religion and, and one state. And so the Ottoman writers were saying, no, it's Suleiman. And that religion is Islam, that one religion for the world. So this was part of this, this ideological struggle, which also had uh, a military dimension as well. Does it, cha does it, does it change uh, the caliph for you? Caliph, the Ottomans becoming the caliphs, does it change how it was before? I don't think it does well, when we're looking at the, the early again? modern period. Mm. Uh, the, the one time where I think the Ottomans use the title aggressively is going to be in World War I, mm. where it, they deploy it as Germany's allies, a kind of secret weapon to try and turn Britain, France, and Russia's Muslim colonial populations against their empire, and in that way to weaken the Entente powers through their, their empires. And I think it was that secret weapon which made the Ottomans an attractive ally to Germany Otherwise, they saw the Ottoman Empire as having come through a period of, of wars and revolution that made it actually very ill-prepared to engage in total warfare in 1914. Mm -hmm. But they thought the jihad thing could work, and the reason why they believed the Ottomans could deploy it was because of the caliphal title of the Sultan. So we talk, you mentioned there, Mark, about the uh, Habsburg Empire, etc. And obviously, so once the, the Ottomans are they're getting bigger, the Ottoman Empire is getting bigger and bigger. It's not just, as we've just mentioned, some of the great cities of the world, they're conquering great cities, great empires, um, but, then they come into, but then they are in conflict with the Habsburgs, the angry neighbour, as it were, right? Um, what happens once they've conquered the Middle East, as it were, and then and do, they immediately start, do they immediately say, we're going to take on the Euro, Central Europe, or is it because there's, there are issues around trade, naval, what is it that makes them go into that kind of conflict? Because you would imagine it's a war that you're either going to win or if you lose, it's the end. Mm. Well, the, the Ottomans are fighting east and west. So they're, they're fighting against the Safavid Empire in Persia mm. to the east. Uh, Suleiman will go and conquer Baghdad, for example. But then Suleiman will also turn west and conquer Belgrade and destroy the last Hungarian kingdom. And then the Ottomans will conquer the island of Rhodes, which was, you know, incredible, a credible mm. feat. So the Ottomans are, are, are going back and forth, east and west, mm -hmm. and they're expanding. And there's different reasons for that. I mean, one, one of the reasons why they wanted to conquer Rhodes was because the, the knights there were harassing mm -hmm. Muslim pilgrims who were, try, were taking a sea journey um, to the, on the pilgrimage uh, route. This was, this was certainly part of it. But, the, but again, we have to think not only socio-economic, trade, and so on, but also ideology. So Charles V, again, Suleiman couldn't believe that someone else was supposed to be the world ruler. So Charles V had a three-tiered crown. So Suleiman had his jewelers build himself a four-tiered crown. And this fourth tier looked exactly like the Pope's tiara. So Suleiman was saying, in a way, I'm better than the Pope, I'm better than the Holy Roman Emperor, and he would wear that crown uh, now, you see this depicted in Magnificent Century. Now, the crown would have been really heavy, but the actor is just moving his head around. Not possible. We know with Queen Elizabeth and what she said about the crown. So he would have been sitting there immobile with his massive four-tier crown as the Habsburg ambassadors were brought in front of him to just gape and look at what was coming toward them. Now, with a, with a fear of turning this into a fashion conversation, because <laughs> that's the second time now, there is a third one, isn't there, which is obviously the king... People were wearing the same kind of clothing as Ottomans, weren't they? There's, there's, there's been references to it in the Tudor period. 
Yeah, I'm not much of a fashion person, but <laughs> certainly, I mean, we know about that. Yeah. And are, you, are you the fashion person? Um, or is it Mark the fashion? Who's the person who knows about Are you this? a fashionista, Mark? Well, yeah. We can talk about Poland later. I mean, yeah. Poland, there was a huge... But it is the case, it is the case, that Henry VIII, our very yeah. own beloved, not beloved, probably not beloved Henry VIII, yeah. <laughs> he, um, he, he revered Suleiman, absolutely revered him. And Henry VIII wanted to be like Suleiman. He wanted to have an empire as grand, as wealthy, as incredible as him. And he would have his courtiers dress up as Ottomans. And he himself would wear a massive turban, and they would party it up at Hampton Court Palace dressed in this fashion. So, so, so we know this. Now, if you go to Hampton Court Palace today in, in London, um, you will see a portrait of Henry VIII, you'll see the portrait of Charles V, and a portrait of the King of France at the time, Francis I. But he actually had a portrait of Suleiman as well. <laughs> but they don't, they don't put it up there, because we think we're here, we're here in England, and you know the Middle East, Muslims, Ottomans, that's so distant. But no, Henry VIII had Suleiman on his mind. I mean, it's still there somewhere in the... They own it, the they own it. I've asked them, I say, why don't, you, why don't you put that? And they I say, know. no, this is the hall of Henry VIII's rivals. Well, well there was a bigger... Yeah, rivals and models, you need the biggest one, so... I'm shocked, yeah, I tell you, you that shocked? that could possibly happen. Yeah, well. Yes. <laughs> In England, yeah. so uh, so it, so they're consolidating all this kind of power. There, there's obviously there's conflicts happening east, west, all over the place. Um, Eugene, why, how do they then go in? How do they end up having such an almighty battle in Europe and going all the way to that next big kind of like key pivotal moment, which of is the gates of Vienna? Yeah. How do they how do they get themselves in? Is it just a case of we're taking this territory and we're just not going to stop, or is it a case or, or is it? conversations with the Catholic Church or the Habsburgs or whoever, why, why did they get sucked into it? Okay, note to the sound operators, because this question I'm going to deflect immediately over to Caroline. Right. Oh. I'm, I'm the Arab guy in the room. She wrote her thesis on Hungary. Uh, so oh, yes. if we're yeah. going that yeah. way, I'm, I'm okay. going to defer to the authority rather than... Can I, I uh, use that trick before that's I That's a good one, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, Hungary. So Hungary between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans. But Hungary, um, from the 16th mid sort of Suleiman's time, was, um, was ruled by a Habsburg. I mean, the Habsburg won out over the native um, Hungarian kingdom, was destroyed by the Ottomans in 1526. So this was sort of like an extension of the Habsburgs right in the heart of Europe, which the Ottomans saw as their, as their bailiwick, of course. Um, not just in Hungary, you know, in Romania, which, where there were sort of you know, the principalities in Romania. I mean, the Habsburgs were sort of everywhere in that area, and for the Ottomans, I mean, there were, you know, particular reasons, particular diplomatic slights and so on. Were these just used as excuses for, um, for going to war? I mean, going to war was a very, it was a horrible thing. I mean, the resources it used, uh, the damage it caused everywhere. Um, so there were sort of real reasons, but, you know, this sort of need for conquest, I think, which we've said already, was certainly one of them and the ideological reason. This went on through Suleiman's reign. By the time I did my thesis, actually, it was around 1600 when the Ottoman Empire had again changed somewhat. So there's Suleiman out on his horse leading how many campaigns? 14 campaigns or something in his life? He dies on campaign. Yeah, yeah. And he dies on campaign yeah. in Hungary. And they tried yeah. to cover up his death because when a sultan dies, all the guys yeah. back in Istanbul will go and seize the throne. So he was brought back, you know, there was a likeness of him sort of waving. This is in the Chronicles. We believe it. Um, so, so, and he died on campaign. Um, sorry, lost my thread. Um, but then things, you know, 
Things changed. His son was not as he was. <laughs> Geopolitics had changed. Sultans no longer went on campaign. You know, nothing stays the same. The whole sort of constellation in Istanbul changed. You know, there were various groups like the Janissaries, viziers, grand viziers, you know, had different ideas from the period of relative stability within the, um, uh, within the court and within the um, dynasty that had preceded it during Suleiman's time, relative stability. And it somewhat unfurled, and the 17th century is another story of all sorts of different groups which you probably haven't heard, one wouldn't have heard of before, um, wanting a share of the action and a share of the prize. But in, so, so what was your question? No, well, I suppose the question, I suppose, really is actually how, how did they get embroiled in, in, this, in, this, in, in, the, in this big war, obviously, because of Hungary? And, um, and I suppose, you know, why is the... I mean, I probably know the answer already, but I'm going to ask the question. Why is, the, why the, why is this... Comp, why is this, this we talk, hear about this phrase, you know, the gates of the Vienna, the Turks are stopped at the gates of Vienna, etc. Why is this such a, such a pivotal moment? Well, they, what does it mean for them I mean, as they well? were... They're twice, as we know, once yeah. during Suleiman's reign, 1529, and they failed then. But again, much later, 150 years later, 1683, they again, as I, even though the war I dealt with was around 1600, and they weren't at war the whole time, but then another sultan, another age, they were again at the gates of Vienna, and again they lost. And that was, for the Europeans, <coughs> a, huge, a huge victory. And the Ottomans, I mean, we, I don't know, as historians, we try and sort of complicate mm. these issues and these dates. But it, you know, whatever you say, it certainly was a huge um, uh, blow to them. The war continued uh, a bit longer. They weren't thrown out of Budapest, for instance, till 1686, till three years after they failed at Vienna. And then the instability, there was a huge period of instability within the empire, within the sort of the sultans. One sultan followed another very quickly. Uh, they moved out of Istanbul because uh, the, you know, there were too many rivalrous and threatening groups in the city. They moved to Edirne and had the capital there, which was a former mm. capital, as Eugene said, before they con conquered Istanbul. Um, in many ways, both internationally, mm. I suppose, you know, Lepanto, that's always another one, 1571, mm. the great Mediterranean battle, is always seen as a turning point in general. Um, it just made them, put them on another track, and Europe felt about itself that it could hold back, could hold um, back. Yeah. these uh, although uh, yes. Europe would always feel under threat right through the yes. 18th century I mean we talk up the defeats the Ottomans suffered as though it's part of a decline story <laughs> that Europe could then put its feet up and relax but I think the fact that the Ottomans were banging on the gates of Vienna yeah. as late as the late 17th century is uh, a warning to a Europe that was far from complacent and, and that still viewed the Ottomans as the existential threat to their, their order, their safety. It really wouldn't be until the 18th century where I think Europe could begin to have confidence they had better technology, they had better methods, that they could actually contain the threat that the Ottomans posed to them. But it was even then still a threat. So. But that, that's when, um, so, mm. sorry. No, I was going to say what kind of threat, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you go to Vienna today, and if you go to the very, if you go to the top of the Stefan's Dome, the mm. cathedral, 
the, you'll see that the bells are actually made from melted down Ottoman cannons from the siege of 1683, which they talk about very proudly. So it's very much, in, I don't know if anyone's Austrian here, but in uh, the Austrian consciousness today, you go to churches throughout the countryside in, in, in Austria and you'll see murals depicted of the, the, the Turkish occupation of this year and, and so on. Um, and, and so, there, so it real made, made a real big impact. Now, when the Ottomans cease being a military threat to Central and Western Europe, then there's a change in attitude to, um, to Muslims, to Turks, to the Ottomans. And we see the rise of Orientalism already in the 18th century. And we see a different kind of depiction of the Muslims when they're not threatening. And actually we see a turn in the 18th century when Europeans, uh, people in the rest of Europe, are now enjoying Turkish coffee. <laughs> and they're now enjoying Turkish sweets. <laughs> and there we see um, in the Mozart's, um, you know, in, in these different uh, artistic productions, we see the Turk now as a laughingstock uh, in theater, or now as an enemy that can be overcome. So when the Ottomans are no longer a threat, then the Ottoman culture, tulips, right? We always think of tulips, we think of Holland, sorry. Tulips come from Persia through the Ottoman Empire. So, but all of these things enter European um, culture in the 18th century, and because, as uh, Eugene was saying, the, the Ottomans have lost their technological edge, and it's Russia who has gained that edge, and, it's and the battle will switch further north and east from the 18th century to the end of empire in the 20th century. So how, how, dra how dramatic, Eugene, is that kind of collapse? I mean, well, we, know, we know historically it takes roughly around about... Yeah, so I wouldn't use the word collapse. I yeah. mean, in other words... It's a very slow collapse. Right? So collapses aren't slow. Yeah, <laughs> right? that's true, yeah. And, and what we see in the Ottoman Empire is a, sh a shift in the relative balance of power. And I think maybe as historians we push back on that because there is still a tendency for people to write books called, you know, The Decline of the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> and it starts sometime after the, the day after Suleiman dies, and then it lasts until Ataturk comes to power. And as historians, we just don't think that captures what makes for the survival of an empire that is as strong and as dynamic as the Ottomans over so many centuries. But there is indisputably a shifting balance of power that's taking place, where new technologies and new ideas are emerging that are giving an edge to the Ottoman Empire's neighbors, and then they begin to exercise their strength in the way that the Ottomans until recently have been using against them, which is to say to be pushing back on the frontiers of the Ottoman Empire. Russia is the most aggressive, initially. The Habsburgs are right in there like a flash. And then you'll see British and French imperial interests driving them. The French start by making a stab at conquering Egypt in 1798, and then they conquer Algeria in, uh, in 1830. And Britain will start at the farthest reaches of Ottoman aspirations, which is to say in the Persian Gulf and in South Arabia around Aden. But both are going to begin to encroach on Ottoman territories, largely because they can. And the fact they can just reflects that there's a shift in the balance of power, which means you can't write the Ottomans off even yet. They can still be a danger to you. But you're getting more and more self-assured, cockier, that Britain and France and other European powers, if they take the Ottomans on for a key territory, are going to prevail. And that creates a real balance of power problem in Europe itself, because the Ottomans are astride a lot of very important territory that these new and expanding European empires are interested in. And the big worry becomes if the Ottomans aren't capable of defending their land against these ambitious grabs by France, Britain, Germany, whatever, 
then this could be the source of instability in Europe. And that gives rise to the whole Eastern question, which will be where the shift in the balance of power is going to actually start to drive European politics. And then suddenly the Ottoman Empire goes from being a threat to becoming a question. A question. Um, um, what's the question then? The question is, what, what, how do we dismember yeah, this, exactly. this yeah, empire? Yeah. That's the Eastern question, but also Orientalism. Then the Ottomans begin to be depicted as mm. de degenerate and corrupt, and we see that in Orientalist um, artwork. And the, the British Museum had a, had a really good um, exhibition on um, mm. Orientalist art uh, two years ago. And so, so then, you know, as, as the threat has gone, and then all of a sudden you, you see these kind of changing uh, depictions. Mm. Now, but as Eugene said, I mean, the Ottomans exist until 1922. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're actually quite strong and important, and there are some very important First World War battles where the Ottomans are defeating the British and, and, and so on. So. But while all this is going on, while the, while the French and the British and the, and the Russians, etc., are encroaching, and it looks like it's, it's, it's not a, a two-century ending as opposed to a collapse, um, what's going on in, in Ottoman society and, 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 amongst, and amongst the rulers of this empire? Are they, are they, going to, are they trying well, to do something about it? They are. They're sort of trying to hold back the flood, which is, yeah. you know, it's largely Russia. Russia's a, a constant worry. I mean, <clears throat> the fo they fortify Istanbul, they fortify the Bosphorus. I mm. mean, they're afraid. I mean, the, Russia, the Cossacks of Ukraine, of the steppes in Ukraine, came right down within the Bosphorus in the 17th century. We sort of forget that. So, I mean, I think they were haunted by that. But Russia gradually eats away and um, at, you know, Ottoman territories in the Balkans and to some degree sort of on the northeast of the, um, uh, the Black Sea as well. And I think that psychologically this was a huge issue. So they kept, you know, they went to war with the, uh, with the Russians, often ill-advisedly. I mean, there were dissenting voices mm. within the were, you know, people writing reports, officials, whatever, writing reports saying that this was really not a good idea, that they didn't have the power to do it. I mean, I think, you know, from my perspective, that the loss of Crimea was a big driver for a lot of what started in the mm. early 18th century. Um, what would you... I don't know. I'm, I'm getting into... I'm, I'm happy well, what about the society? The what about they make yeah. changes, though. The yeah. Ottomans, though, no, they, yeah. they, 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 they start to make changes they in society. Make changes. Yeah. They exactly. start to experiment with... Uh, we haven't talked about all the Ottoman yeah. institutions, but the Ottomans yeah, begin at the end of the 19th century will have a constitution mm -hmm. and they will have begin to experiment with parliamentary democracy and they will begin to um, change the structure of the military um, to make it um, to allow more people in. They will allow, eventually they'll allow Christians to join the military, not Christians who are compelled to convert to Islam, but Christians who remain Christians. This will be at the end. So, so the Ottomans realize something's wrong. They establish all these different military academies to try to train their elite in the, the latest technologies from France and Prussia and Russia and Germany. They import instructors from Germany and from France and from, from Russia. They also begin to translate everything they get their hands on in German, Russian and French um, so, that, so that they can figure out how is it that we who once ruled so much more territory have shrunk as an empire and how is it that now you know we lose Cyprus and we lose we're losing mm -hmm. all these places that are very close to our to our hearts so so they do try to make changes mm -hmm. and they do make radical changes and I always say that the Ottomans ran out of time mm -hmm. so there was a revolution in 1908 which finally pushes the dynasty aside uh, realistically speaking and there is a, 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 a group of revolutionaries 
who take over the regime, and they try to quickly implement all these radical changes. But what happens next? There's a counter-revolution. And what happens next? There's two Balkan wars, and then there's the First World War. So they have, they have one year breathing space to completely transform society and government and the army, and they can't do it. Yeah. No. And then they choose the wrong side and, and for the First well, World War. Well, I was going to say, that takes us up to your speciality now, I suppose, the First World War and, and the impact and what that creates as well. How, how the, I mean, are they, have they got no choice but to fight? Uh, that's such a good question. Yeah. And I should warn you, audience, that I did write a book on this, and this answer <laughs> could easily take for the next three or four hours. Yeah. And we are going to give these guys a chance to ask yeah. us questions, right? Oh, no, you've got a few minutes. Come on. Sure? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you've got a few minutes. Professor, that's all you can get. No, but no, what, do they have to go to war? That's no, one of the big I questions. Think, do I they have they, to go to war? The, the Ottomans had come to persuade themselves that they had no choice. And I think the perception was Russia anticipated the total collapse of the Ottomans was any moment now. The, the experience of the Ottomans in the Balkan Wars in 1912-1913 said that this once great empire was now too weak to even see off a challenge from the little countries that emerged as successor states from its Balkan provinces. The likes of Bulgaria and Montenegro and Bosnia and Serbia. And these are non-entities. And if non-entities are beating the Ottoman Empire, you're in trouble. Russia's biggest concern was that if the Ottomans were about to fall, that one of those non-entities, particularly Greece, might gallop in through the mm. breached gates of Constantinople and extend the kingdom of Greece to include the once Byzantine capital, to make them the heritors of Byzantium. And Russia, the cultural capital of restoring Byzantine Orthodox Christianity, that was theirs. And as they entered the war, and they finally answered this question, what was the question? How do we dismember this empire? Mm. Okay, now that they're going to war with the Ottoman Empire, for the first time, the European powers begin to talk about what bits they want to strike agreement before they get into the actual defeat. And Russia says, you know, we want Constantinople. They want yeah. the territories in the Caucasus. Well, the Ottomans know this. It's a decision the, the Russians actually took in February of 1914, before war even started, and they deferred acting on it until a generalized European conflict would provide the fog of war within which they could make that audacious grab. And in the summer of 1914, you got the generalized European war to make that happen. So the young Turk regime believed they had a clear and present threat in Russia that targeted their capital city, and they needed an ally to defend them against Russian territorial ambitions. The first choice was France and Britain. But of course, you weren't going to break up the Triple Entente. France and Britain were already in a mutual defensive alliance mm. with Russia. And the Germans came with no strings attached. They had fantastic military capacities. They had no imperial ambitious in Ottoman territory. If the Germans were looking anywhere, it was beyond the Ottoman Empire, at Afghanistan, northwest frontiers of India, India itself how to topple Britain's world dominance, turf them out of India. So if the Germans were looking anywhere in imperial terms, it was there. And so that meant the Ottomans would be an ally for Germany, the Germans would be a threat to the Ottomans, and they leapt into a conflict. But the counterfactual, what if they just stayed neutral in the war? I think we'd still be dealing with an Ottoman Empire today. I don't think it had to have mm. ended. Uh, the Ottoman Empire didn't die, it was murdered by the victorious powers in the process that they initiate through the partitions and, and through the Treaty of Seven that they imposed. So there we go. Mm -hmm. That's very good. <laughs> yeah. You had another minute. Caroline, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a big thing, isn't it? Because obviously the empire does finish, but the empire is technically finished. 
you know, the leadership of the empire is technically finished yeah. a few years before that anyway. But when in the First World War, I think, as Mark mentioned before, there were some significant moments like Gallipoli and things like that. But effectively, this does mark the end of the story, really, doesn't it? I mean, both Mark and, um, and you, I think, have mentioned, you know, the, the Balkan Wars that were mm. just before the war. And before that, there were other wars. You mm. know, they were in yeah. Tripoli, they were in Libya. Yeah. And in the late 19th century, there were the wars with the successor states in the Balkans, I mean, they were exhausted. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, interestingly, I mean, as Mark also uh, alluded, you know, earlier on, it was only, only Muslims could fight. Christians were not allowed to fight mm. in the Ottoman army. So they were, you know, the Muslims were pretty pissed off because they were the ones defending this place. And then they had all these ungrateful Christians towards the end. Um, but later, everybody joined in. I mean, it was a world war. And it, as we in Britain have only learned recently that it was much wider than um, we were led to believe. We I went to Gallipoli the first time years ago, and I, there were all these Indian graves. Mm. I had no idea what this is about. But there has been a lot of scholarship recently on the anniversaries, I think, of 1914. There were wonderful conferences in Istanbul, people from all over talking about the spread of this war. And the Ottomans were involved all over the place. Yemen, I mean, mm. you know, they were hugely um, stretched. And so too stretched, probably, for the... For and, the and, you know, by the time yeah. the war came, yeah. which went on afterwards, of course, because then they had, with sort of British connivance, um, you know, Greeks had landed, and Greeks from Greece mm. had landed in Anatolia, and they were sort of trying to fight them off, too. Um, I don't but, know, I wondered if they would, would have continued, actually. I mean, they I would have they lost were just them, pretty yeah. exhausted. I may differ with you. So, well, except the, the Turkish War of Independence yes, well, tells you that even after all yeah. the exhaustion you've cited, yeah, they are able true. to mobilize one more war to retain their sovereignty over what they saw as their territory. To That's me, important. it's really significant. Yeah. They had one more war in yeah. them, even after the Ottomans had been exhausted. True. And quite brutal. Well, yeah, quite rude. So yes. just, just in case people don't know that, so obviously when the, when the First World War ends, and I'm, just, I'm really, really praising it now, obviously, the First World, because we're coming to the end to get some questions in, uh, the First World War ends, Mark, and of course... Yeah, Mark, So the First you. World War oh. ends, in that sense, and then we have this situation where, as you said, you know, the empire is being carved up, one bit by bit, mm -hmm. uh, but, and the powers are occupying Constantinople, and the Greeks of encouragement by some, I don't know, dastardly kind of British government, um, decide to attack. How do they survive that? What's the reason why they survive this? Which then obviously leads well, to... Well, who's, who's they? What do you mean as they? Well, what, what, what I say they. The, the, so the, the, the empire doesn't survive, but the, right. the new country that emerges from mm. this comes from this particular moment, right? Turkey. Yeah, but it's not, it's not the same thing. I mean, Eugene had said that the empire was murdered. I would say they also committed suicide. <laughs> Because the, I mean, the, the Ottomans suffered the, the greatest um, proportion of um, fatalities of any ally, yeah. much, yeah. I mean, much greater than France and so on. And part of that was self-inflicted because the Ottomans also, in the midst of war, instead of seeing, for example, that the Ara some of the Arabs were allying with the British, they didn't see that. Instead, they imagined that the Armenians were conspiring with the Russians, and then the Ottomans murdered, massacred their own Armenian population. So this, in the midst of war, devoting your, your, your trains and your resources and your soldiers to wiping out uh, hundreds of thousands of your own citizens, instead of, you know, so there was this conspiracy theory that these internal Christians were trying to bring the empire down. Mm -hmm. So this, this, this also, so part of what led to the fall of the Ottomans was this kind of, this kind of paranoid thinking. So, so at the end of the war then, what is left? Well, there was an attempt 
amongst the Muslims of the, em the empire that remained, so Kurds, Turks, uh, Arabs primarily, there was, a, there was an idea that they could save the empire and create a Muslim empire. Mm. They saw the Christian Armenians and Greeks as traitors, but they could fight together. And so I wouldn't call it the Turkish War of Independence. I mean, that's what it's called after 1923. But from 1918, the end of the war, to 1922, it's a coalition of Muslims in, you know, there are, there are Muslims in northern Syria and northern Iraq, as well as Anatolia, who were fighting, trying to retain, keep the um, empire alive. Now, it's not how it turned out. What turned out was a Turkish state took over uh, in that area, and then the Iraqi state, well, there was British mandates in, in, in Palestine and so on, but, but there was a moment in time where there could have been a kind of Sunni Muslim uh, rump empire there, but it, it didn't turn out that way. And then, of course, we have the last leader of the Ottoman Empire, the last caliph who's, what is that, 1922? Well, in, mm. in, in 1924, the okay. caliphate oh, yeah. is abolished. 1922, yeah. the sultanate is yeah. abolished, and the royal family is Taken away. kicked yeah. out. They won't return to the 1990s. Yeah. And then um, in 1924, the caliphate is abolished, yeah. and the last caliph will die in Nazi-occupied Paris. In fact, he had always wanted to return. Um, he went to Saudi Arabia. He tried to return that way, but wasn't allowed. So, so as of 1924, and then soon after the the Turkish Republic would become a secular um, Turkish nationalist republic. But Turkey isn't the only inheritor of the Ottomans. We make this mistake. Greece is an inheritor of the Ottomans, and mm. Bulgaria, and Hungary, and there's 22 countries, Egypt. Now, none of those countries today would claim the Ottomans. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Greece. They definitely don't claim the Ottomans <laughs> as not, their... Not fact, a good idea to suggest uh, that. That 500-year no. window of Greek history is called the era of the Turkokratia, when, the, yeah. when we were occupied by the, by the Turks. But all of these countries, all these places, have an Ottoman past. Mm. And if you go to Budapest today, yeah. there's a tomb of an Ottoman-era Sufi yeah. in, in, in Pest. And if you go to, name your city, <coughs> go to Sarajevo, oh, sorry, and you yeah. see the, 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 the Ottoman tombs up the, going up the side of the mountain. Well, Jerusalem is Ottoman. You go to Jerusalem. Yeah. The walls yeah. were built yeah. by Suleiman of the old city. So, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. So there you go. The Ottoman Empire is all around us, and yeah. I, oh, what a romp that was! <laughs> that took me back. That took me back. You've uh, done it twice now. I've once on TV and once uh, in Bradford. That was. A, I thought that was hard, but this was. This was one hour to talk about the whole Ottoman Empire, and to leave 10, 15 minutes for questions because I'm sure the. Having said that, now that's the kiss of death. I'm sure there's going to be <laughs> lots of questions. So who wants to be brave and go first? To this, what is in these three here? You're not going to beat this, apart from, you know, I'm telling you now. If you, I think there's a microphone coming over. If you just wait for the microphone, please, yeah. This is the fun part of it, by the way, where you yeah. can like, have your say. First, I want to thank uh, Caroline Finkel for her book. Can you speak uh, into the I, microphone? I actually, I live in Istanbul, and I take often people around, and the book really helps me, actually, to... I live very near... Um, uh, Kanuni Suleiman Bridge in, in Buyuk Chekmeje, mm -hmm. and I'm always telling your story when you say uh, Sultan Selim II, he went out to Belgrade <coughs> to catch his father, he, who had died, and then to bring him back over the bridge. So, mm. I mean, your book is very, very I liked it. Um, and I wanted to tell you also, there's another very good book, it called, um, it was written by a Yale scholar, uh, Dr. Um, Ellen Michael, mm -hmm. and it, it's, it's called uh, 
Alain Michael, and Yeo. The yes, book about Celine. God's, shed, God's shadow on yeah. earth, yeah. actually. And he put it in context mm. with the, on a global issue like that, what the Ottoman conquest, actually quest, really meant with uh, Columbus' discovery of the Americas. So I think this book is also very, very remarkable. Okay. All right. Have we got a question? I've got mm. an answer yeah. to that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did... I don't have a thing, but you could probably... I did review Alan Mikhail's book, and I gave it an excoriating review in the literary review. So that's a different sort of history. He's a well-known academic, but his book was... I didn't think it was good history, but yeah. <laughs> I have to admit this in the interest of transparency. Okay. Sorry, so my, Kirsten. Well, my question could be a whole program as well, but, and you've referenced a little bit of it, but the contemporary legacy then of the Ottoman Empire... That's next session. <laughs> Is it actually the next session? Yes. Oh. Yeah. So you well, I'm, I'm, I'm going across the Alhambra. But the so please, for to me. really get to the contemporary of that, I mean, I'm sure, and I know <laughs> Eugene's got about 15 books on it. Uh, but no, but you're right, the, contempt, the next session, it, that, that is a few hours in itself, yeah. But, but I will say two lines. I'll let Eugene say two lines. Exactly, exactly. So, in essence, when the Ottomans withdraw from the Arab lands, I'll speak only about the Arab world. They left behind an educated elite that would continue to shape the struggle for independence from the colonial powers right through the 20s and 30s and 40s. And I think the influence of the Ottomans is something which we have tended to play down in line with Arab nationalist historiography, which has cast the Ottoman experience as four centuries of imposed backwardness, not looking at the fact that the people who were saying that were themselves educated in elite institutions either in their hometowns like Aleppo and Damascus, or indeed many of them went and were trained in Istanbul. And it was something that would shape their culture very profoundly until European institutions of higher education under colonial contexts began to displace them. So the Ottoman legacy would be certainly for a generation after the end of Ottoman rule over the, the Arab provinces. And so we do have a session. I, I'm just saying, just so you know, for those of you who are fascinated about this subject, and it looks like you are, uh, at four o'clock in, in the same room, you can get tickets. It's called The Birth of the Modern Middle East, and you'll be able to hear Eugene again, I'm sure. Yeah. I'll hear Eugene again. But you are right, though. No, but you're right on the legacy. I mean, actually, I, was, I covered the Turkish earthquake for BBC News, and actually, it's very interesting, the, re, the, the comments that people gave me, because they thought, well, the, what they did, I thought speaking Arabic might be quite helpful. It turns out I made the biggest mistake of my life, because at that time, everyone was calling me a dog. Because as far as they were concerned, if you're an Arab, you're, you've got to be a dog. Yeah, it's, you're, not, you're, not, you're not one of us. You didn't, we're, not, we're not your friends. You, we, weren't, we weren't part of your empire. You were our occupiers, you know. Can I just say yeah. one, one thing? Um, as we all know what's happening in the UK, decolonization history and so on, and, you know, somewhere like Bradford, this is obviously... I just saw the huge statue of Queen Victoria. Is there a Colston moment there? I'm not sure. But um, in, within Ottoman history, we haven't begun to look at the empire in anywhere approaching those terms. I mean, Eugene, he's mm. right. He says, you know, education. I mean, there were British-educated Indians, for instance, but, mm. you know, we haven't thought through mm. the legacy. It hasn't mm. yet reached that point within Ottoman history. Okay. I think we've got a question about there, yeah? yeah. Uh, I'm interested, I mean, you mentioned uh, quickly the, the, uh, the Europeans gaining technological superiority against the Ottoman empires as a factor. I'm interested in financial technology, in, in the financial revolution in Britain, funding government debt and capacity to, to go to war and spreading in Europe. 
was that a relative weakness of the Ottomans who went bankrupt and you know, what was there was that a major factor this relative financial development of well, the it was, in a, it was in our series probably because it's in your book yeah. oh, which bit Gosh, I can't remember it was so long ago um, <clears throat> well if you're talking about the 19th century which is not naturally yeah. my century I mean they had had great financial woes in earlier times but somehow they sort of limp to the um, frontier and, you know, engaged in war. Then they were, you know, they were almost a, a, a you know, they, they were heavily, I, I don't know this language so well because I've not come from the 19th century, um, as I have in earlier centuries. I mean, they were almost a, well, not a colony of the, but financially and economically, they were enthralled to the Europeans. You know, there was, the national debt was run by the French. You know, they were very much, their finances were very much controlled by particularly Britain and France during the 19th century. They didn't have much leverage, and huge profits were taken out by the Western powers. The Ottoman Central Bank was run by the French and the British. Yeah, the So Ottoman their monetary, bank. The, their banknotes <laughs> were issued yeah. by the Europeans, and that was a main device, one of the main devices for funding government debt to fund the war efforts. Uh, the others was the bond market that was also funded by the Europeans. So there was a relative dependence on war funding by the Ottomans on the Europeans that I think uh, was another aspect of their technological disadvantage, if you will. I mean, that's interesting. I didn't know that as such, but certainly they were deriving, the Europeans were deriving huge, huge profits, especially the late 19th century, but sort of from mm -hmm. the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, there's a question here, just to the front, if you want to bring your microphone over. I, I was going to say that um, people talk about the decline of the Ottoman Empire. You compare that to the British Empire, you could say the British Empire lasted from around 1800 to 1950, 150 years. The Ottoman Empire lasted four or five hundred years, so decline's relative. But in some of the pop histories I've been reading, not from you guys, there's a kind of maybe racist um, interpretation which says the ruling elite of the empire didn't get their hands dirty. They, they wanted trade to be done by the Jews or the Armenians, military stuff by the Germans, financed by the French, uh, and they wanted to sort of subcontract the business of running empire, and that's why the empire collapsed. Is there any truth in that, or is it just sort of Mark, pop you European shaking point your of head. What have, you been, what have you been reading? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's name names. No, of course, of course the Ottomans were, uh, of course they're involved in every aspect. The, one of the old myths is that Muslims don't you know, engage in trade because there's this prohibition on usury. Well, that's not true. The Ottomans sent Muslim merchants to what is today India, and they, sent up, they set up their merchant houses in, in again I mentioned in, uh, in Gujarat. The Ottoman, Ottoman Muslim merchants also traded in Venice. There was a, an inn, known as the Turkish Inn in Venice, that was built by the Venetian authorities for the Ottoman Muslim merchants to trade in all the new products of the new world. So um, tobacco, tomatoes, eyeglasses, uh, the latest eyeglasses, uh, coffee, and so on. So, so, it, so it's not true. It's not true. It's a silly, silly argument. <laughs> OK. We've got a question over there, yeah? Just want to say thank you for a really uh, illuminating talk. Um, here in Bradford, people often call it Bradfood because we love our food. Um, so my question's for Caroline. If you could invite a historical figure from the Ottoman period over for dinner, who would it be and why, and what would you, what would you have? 
Well, I don't do food and I don't do fashion, but it's, is that a planted question? Yeah. Because I know you know my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> the person I would ask, as these guys can guess, and I mentioned briefly, though in the 17th century, there was a world traveler called Evlia Chelebi. Yeah. Who was a courtier born in 1611, sorry, who traveled, I mean, I wish we had a map, you know, from sort of Vienna, up the Nile, to Kazan, I mean, all over the place. And he left a 10 volume, it's the longest travel account in world history. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not known um, very well in the English-speaking world. I mean, bits of it have been published. But for instance, if you're a Croatian, his trips to Croatia have been, to Croatia have been <laughs> translated into, uh, into Croatian. And he is who I would ask. He was an extraordinary and remarkable character. Mm. And this book is. And what would you okay. serve him? What would yeah, I serve for him? Dinner. Well, I don't know, because uh, we did actually do a ride following him um, in part of his, in Western Anatolia. And he talks about, you know, going up mountains and eating kebabs. Every town he goes to, he talks about the products of the place. He was very, very interested in food. Probably the kebabs and coffee, these are the ones he actually mentioned in the bit that we rode that he um, enjoyed. He says he doesn't drink, so I guess mm. he wouldn't, there wouldn't be any drink, but who knows. Um, yes. Who would you invite, Mark? Ah, oh, there's so many interesting figures in Ottoman history. I, I think probably um, I would actually invite, there was an Ottoman Jewish messianic figure mm -hmm. named Shabbatai Tzvi that mm -hmm. Jews believed was the Messiah and created the, the second largest Jewish messianic movement in history after that of Jesus. I would meet him and say, okay, are you really, you know, I would say, what is this all about? <laughs> Show me some magic, you know. What would I serve him? Well, he purposely broke all the kosher rules, so I wouldn't have to worry about that. I would, um, I would serve him, I don't know, something, some Ottoman stew, I don't know, cherry kebab or something. Eugene? You know, I'd have to up. push the boundaries here, and I think I'd probably go for Suleiman's wife, Hurem. Okay, yeah. You would. Would you now? Yeah, yeah because. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was a cheap shot, but a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell my you. wife. If they would let <laughs> you. But she'd be fascinating, and she she broke all the all the molds for the roles of, of women of royal women, uh, as did Suleiman in actually marrying uh, one of his, his essentially slave women, yeah. and and she was to retain his affections and his his uh, loyalty to the end of his life. And then I just think she'd be, she would know everyone. She would have known everything. She would be a fantastic raconteuse. We only know her voice through her letters and we don't even know if she wrote those herself. Scribes might've gotten in the way, who knows? But yeah, Hurem. Well, there's Husky a whole Sultan. series you can watch on it. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Well, look, I think we've romped through the Ottoman Empire. We even know who we would invite to dinner and why. Um, I just want to say thank you very much. Uh, a round of applause for this fantastic panel. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.